Revelation chapter 14 is where we're at today. And working our way through the book of Revelation, will you stand with me and I'm going to read the text today. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their fo- on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from the heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand, a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. 
And Lord, as we read this sobering passage, on the one hand, the blessings that go out toward those who follow the Lamb, who follow Jesus, who obey the gospel and his commands. Wonderful blessing. Their works follow them to paradise. And on the other hand, the reality of eternal torment and wrath from God being poured out upon those who are disobedient and those who worship the false Christ. And just as D.L. Moody said, I never teach on hell without a tear in my eye. Lord, I pray just for those, the tear, even in my heart, Lord, as I would preach today and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the reality and the truth of what your word proclaims concerning your justice and your judgment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I was getting dressed this morning, as I sometimes do, and I was like, I could wear this black shirt, you know, or I could wear this black and white sort of striped shirt, or I could wear this really like night, like uh, bright blue kind of happier shirt. And I was like, oh man, I'm teaching on like the wrath of God today. And I don't want to be, you know, a big downer, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to wear the black shirt. So I put on the blue bright shirt and got all ready and noticed I just had, I don't even know what happened to me. Like, little kids with just smudges and food, and it was just all over. Man, do I even wash my clothes? And so I had to put on kind of a medium, like, and I think that's probably good representation of the passage. You know, there's some just dark realities of just the, the sadness of what our sin brings. But there's also these wonderful linings of hope for those who would come to the Lamb, who would come to Jesus, And Lindsay and I were driving home from Corvallis with the family this week, and we were listening to This American Life podcast, and there was a whole special on uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And the Battle Hymn of the Republic starts out, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Such glory that day will be, amen. He is trampling out the vintage where his grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And we know that even though there will be wrath, and there's almost there's this picture, this imagery of grapes being stored up and a harvest being ripened for God's wrath burning hot against sin to eventually be poured out. The good news is, is that right now in 2019, December, Prineville, there is hope for you to not have the wrath of God upon you. That's a good thing. That is something that right now you should be like, I'm seeing the silver lining. I'm seeing that there's something good for me today. We even read that God is so good that he causes an angel to fly about heaven and proclaim the everlasting good news to every nation, every tribe, every language. If they would have an ear to hear the good news that the wrath of God doesn't have to be upon them and they would respond to that good news of God, 
They will be saved from the wrath of God. And the battle hymn of the Republic says, he says, I have read his fiery gospel writ on rows of burnished steel. As you deal with my contemners, so with you, my grace will deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel since God is marching on. God is marching on. There's a time that will come when the things that we read of will happen. Right now we see them as the future. Right now we see them as tomorrow, but there will be a day where tomorrow will be today. And many people, maybe even some that we love, that we know, maybe even you, will find yourself in this sad, sad story where wrath is the outcome for you. But it's our hope today that you would today even almost read the gospel and the good news on these burnished plates of steel in front of us. The idea of God trampling out sinners in wrath is not a popular idea in our culture. One denomination even recently uh, changed a line in the song, In Christ Alone, because it says, There on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they changed it to say the love of God was magnified. Just whatever we can do to just, you know, we don't want to offend anybody, you know. We just, we want church to just be a nice, just, you know, just rainbows and butterflies and unicorns and kittens and whatever, you know. And it's just not reality. That's not truth. The truth is, and we've studied this before many times in Revelation, that God is a just God. God is a holy God. And if God is going to be truth and just and holy, then he must deal with sinners in a true and just and holy way. As the psalm says, 94.1, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs. Shine forth. We long for God to be to be just and to bring vengeance against sinners in our culture, in our world, those that harm little children, you know, those that shoot up schools and public places, just, just Pearl Harbor day, like the day before Pearl Harbor, someone shot up Pearl Harbor and then took his own. We want justice for these kinds of things. And, and it would never do for a judge to just wink at sin, to wink at crime, to wink at murder, to wink at at rape and sexual offenses that would never do for us for a judge to wink at genocide and sweep it under the rug. We demand justice. And that is a good thing because we were created in the image of God who also demands justice. Rise up, that psalm says, O judge of the earth, and render punishment to the proud. The 144,000 start out the chapter and give us a, maybe a breath in the midst of this introduction where it says, I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000 
having his father's name written on their foreheads. And so we see uh, another vision in this parentheses section of Revelation kind of zoomed out, showing us what's going to happen the latter part of the tribulation period. Zoomed out, we kind of see, oh, here's some things that are going to happen. And then we go and we see them happen in the latter chapters of Revelation. And so here's kind of a, a vision of the future where a lamb is shown, or literally it's the lamb. I looked and saw the lamb from Revelation chapter five. It's Jesus who appears as the lamb who has been slain. And we ask ourselves a few questions about this lamb in this verse. Where is this lamb? Standing on Mount Zion. And it's here when you're reading books that uh, opinions divide like the Red Sea. You know, is this literal Mount Zion in Jerusalem? I've been there. I've stood on Mount Zion. I've seen Mount Zion from a distance. There's a real Mount Zion. It's a historical Mount Zion. It's a future Mount Zion. Uh, whether or not that's the Mount Zion that the lamb is standing on is, you know, doesn't really matter uh, at the moment because here in Revelation 14, there's a vision. We're seeing the heavens. We're seeing the tabernacle. We're seeing the temple rather. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 tells us that Mount Zion is actually a picture of a true and better Mount Zion in heaven. And so, you know, you just read one way or the other. And personally, I could go either way, but he is on Mount Zion and, uh, and that's a good thing. That means he's ruling, this lamb is ruling and he is reigning and he will one day for certain rule and reign from Mount Zion on the throne of David. And we're excited about that. Um, what else do we know about him? is that uh, he's standing there. We're going to see that the beast is going to go down while the lamb begins to stand. And that's a good thing after these last couple chapters of looking at these beasts, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the devil, who's the dragon. And it seems like they're getting all the victory. And here we're seeing, oh no, they're actually going down and the lamb is going to stand and he is going to rule and he is going to reign. Who are the lamb's companions in this verse? They are the 144,000. And I hate to burst your bubble, but this isn't you, okay? Um, I, I don't believe this is any one of us in this room. Um, and, and what I do believe it is, is that these are 144,000 Jews that are saved in the tribulation period. They are Jews, we know from earlier in Revelation, where they're just numbered out, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, so unless you're a Jew from a tribe of Israel and you're going to miss out on the rapture and get saved later, I just wouldn't go that way if I were you, um, then this isn't us, nor is it hopefully uh, you. But the 144,000, these are God's special remnant that we see in the book. Uh, here's a description of the 144,000. His father's name is written on their foreheads. So rather than having received the mark of the beast, where the beast number is on a forehead or on a hand, these have received uh, the seal of the Lord, the signet of the Lord upon their foreheads. The original manuscripts say that, it ha that they have the lamb's name and the father's name on their foreheads. So they are marked for the Lord. Uh, it was Warren Wearsby who said, it's better to reign with Christ forever than to reign with the Antichrist for a few years. 
And these 144,000 are those that chose the better for certain. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So this is reminiscent of Revelation chapter 1. Man, the power of the Lord's voice. It's like rushing rivers, raging waters, great waterfalls. The Niagara of heaven is the voice of the Lord and uh, the voice of that loud, booming thunder. Great power, majesty, authority is speaking here. And then something wonderful happening. The sound of harpists playing their harps. So sometimes we wonder, like, where do we get the imagery of, like, the cartoons, you know, like, playing their harps in heaven. Doesn't that sound like paradise to you? Um, okay. Uh, well, it's apparently a great tool for worship. The stringed instruments. Uh, some denominations would say that uh, instruments in worship are from the devil. And I just can't get there when I read the scriptures. There's a whole lot of scriptures referring to the instruments playing with loud uh, resounds so that the Lord may be glorified in the worship. I actually found out uh, recently we have a harpist in our church. And so maybe one day we'll get a little special treat, maybe a foreshadowing of heaven. Look at verse 3. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And, and so this loud sound, this waterfall type sound is, is you know, there's, there's the, the voice of the Lord and then there's the worship of these 144,000, many harps being played and they've got this fresh song, a fresh song, a song that's previously unknown. And you know, as a worship leader and as a guy, since I was 14 years old, I've uh, played the guitar and I've led worship with youth as a youth and all the way up till now. I'm a guy that appreciates a new song. Of course, I love the old. Of course, I love the hymns, but there's something very special about a new song that's been freshly written. I have a friend in Corvallis, uh, Ryan Smith. He leads worship at uh, Calvary Corvallis. And God has just given him a gift of just regular, fresh songs being presented to the church. And just when the church will hear these new songs of praise and worship to the Lord, just it's a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit when we sing these new songs to the Lord. And the Psalms in your Bible talk so much about singing a new song to the Lord. But whether it's new or whether it's old, you've got to get used to the fact that Christianity is a singing faith. Did you know that? I know that's, that's hard to hear as cowboys from Prineville and construction workers who work up at Facebook and, you know, <laughs> I drive equipment for a living, you know. Do you know I just unburied a dinosaur, you know. I found a behemoth and now you're wanting me to sing, you know. Um, yeah, actually. Okay, so Christianity is a singing faith. And you know what? There's something that, that God has made us to be people that just, just, just pour out all of ourselves to the Lord. We lift our hands. We bow our knees. We 
cry out. We do talk, but you know, there's something that separates us from the angels in heaven and the angels, they will speak in the book of Revelation, but it's the Christians that sing. And I just want to encourage you guys, start singing. I don't care if it's out of tune, out of tone, just start letting it go to the Lord and you will find wonderful blessing there for you. You know, my dad, he really was my hero. He was three-time state champion wrestler in high school for Oregon. He was a Washington State University wrestler. He was super buff. Um, He was a cowboy, and he just looked so cool riding his horse. And I just remember as a kid just looking at him, just always just being like, my dad, you know. But my dad could not sing. Like, not even close. No. But he was a worshiper. And later on, if you don't know my story, I was 19 years old when my dad had a stroke, and it it paralyzed the whole left side of his body. He couldn't swallow. He couldn't go to the bathroom by himself. And we had to train him with occupational therapy to have some sort of mobility again. But even when he was at his best, he couldn't move his left arm. It was in a sling and, uh, and he would wheel himself to the front of the church and he would sit in the front row. And when the music just got proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, he'd push himself up out of his wheelchair and he would stand up and he would raise his one good hand and he would just start singing out to Jesus. And I'll tell you, it takes humility to do that. And I would encourage you, just, some of you are, you're paralyzed when it comes to worship. And I'd say, don't let yourself be paralyzed. Just start going for it and giving God the glory. You might as well start practicing now because you're going to be doing it then, whether you're the 144,000 or not. You know, uh, we're worshipers when we're in heaven. And so verse four says that these 144,000, 4,000s, yeah, are the ones, a couple more descriptions of them. Number one, they were not defiled with women for they were virgins. And so, um, you know, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and say that they're with the 144,000, just a great personal question to ask them. No. Um, oh, okay. <clears throat> but uh, the NASB says that they kept themselves chaste. Or the NIV, they remained virgins. And, and in a little bit, we're going to see that the, that the rule of the day was immorality. The rule in Revelation in this period, it's much like today, but there's this economic, one-world government, religious system, and it's immoral, and it's adulterous, especially spiritually, okay? We're going to read about it as the second angel begins to proclaim about Babylon, um, and so it, it could be that these are actual virgins, or it could be that they just, they were non-adulterous in their living for Jesus. They did not bow down to the idolatrous system of the world, but they were faithful uh, to the lamb. They had not defiled their garments. And something else that marks them is that they are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It's reversed here. Everywhere the lamb goes, there goes Mary. Okay? 
They, she just knows that that lamb is so pure and so spotless and so loving and so sacrificial. And yet it's also lion-like and he will have his vengeance one day. And Mary knows, I want to follow that lamb. Because in the end of Revelation, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, amillennialist, Jesus wins. Okay? The lamb wins. And so we would all say, I want to be one who follows the lamb wherever he goes. But I was laying in bed and I was just praying over that. And is that really something that marks us? When the lamb calls the church to be a church of prayer, are you a church that goes to corporate prayer? Not, not a lot of response this week to, hey, prayer is this Saturday night. Let's come pray, church. Think of about 6,000 other things I'd rather do. Oh, okay, so, you know, uh, the lamb calls to purity. Yet we live in impurity. The lamb calls to sobriety. Let we, yet we live a buzzed life. The lamb calls towards love, towards generosity, towards sacrificial giving. The lamb calls us towards mercy. The lamb calls us to be part of a local body called his wife. And yet we say, I hate your wife. Oh, I love you, the groom. Hate your bride. You don't say that to a husband. And so are we really those that follow the lamb? Where, Lord, wherever you go, I'm there with you. I mean, except for here and here and here and here and here and here and here. Really, I've got this little list here. I'll go with you here and as to heaven. So if you're going to heaven, I'm with you. Like, oh, that's so cheap, right? And so may the Holy Spirit just speak to our hearts today. We're, we're not the 144,000, yet we can learn from them. We want to be those that follow the lamb, follow the lamb wherever he goes. These are the first fruits, it says in verse four, the, the first of the saved Jews during the tribulation, the beginning of a greater harvest that will follow. The beginning of the kingdom age is 144,000 Jews that are described as we just read in verse five. And in their mouth was found no deceit, no falsehood. No guile, no treacherous, cunning, and bait and switch, craftiness. They were genuine. They were sincere. Ironside says that a guileless man is not a sinless man. He is one who has nothing to hide. When sin is all confessed and judged in the presence of God, guile is absent. And so this guileless company are described as without fault, before the throne of God, for they are without fault. And then we move on to this very intriguing passage in Revelation where we have these three angels, these three trumpeters in a sense. And the first one is an angelic evangelist. Verse six says, and then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Speaks of high overhead, or if you're in the ESV, directly overhead, actually mid-heaven, 
referring to that point in the sky where the sun reaches its apex at its highest point. This angel is flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, tongue, and people. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so this is part of that, an angel in heaven. Like, I don't know who preached the gospel to you the first time you ever heard the gospel. Maybe your mom. I think my wife got saved in the bathtub, you know, when she was a little girl. Her mom was sharing the gospel, and my my uh, wife was washed from her sins there in the bathtub as she received Christ. And, and, uh, and, and you might think of that person, you know, at the cafe or at work or wherever it was where they shared with you the everlasting gospel. And this is the first time in the word that we read of the, of an angel heralding the everlasting gospel and preaching with this effective, um, message of salvation. The nature of this angel's ministry is comprehensive And it's worldwide in the truest sense to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Now, I believe that on this side of of the day of the Lord, that we have this role as well. We have this role of the great commission to go out to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And for us, it just happens to be right now in Nepal. We're up in the Rasua district. We're up in the Longtong Mountains. We're up sharing the everlasting gospel with people who have never even heard of Jesus. They don't know what a cross is. They don't know what Jesus is. They've never heard. Some have angels showing up to them at night, uh, giving them visions and dreams of people who will come and tell them this everlasting gospel. But the angels aren't telling it to them yet. They're saying some gringos are coming up the hill. They're going to be really winded and their packs are going to be about 20 pounds too heavy. Give them some butter tea and then listen to what they have to say to you, you know, and make sure the squatty potty is clean because they like a good clean squatty potty. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. Actually, it is there. It is there. Okay. Um, (coughs) But something that we've seen so far in the book of Revelation is that before the throne of God, we see representations from every tribe every tongue, and every nation. And so what does that tell us is that that mission has taken place before the rapture of the church. That there at the throne of God, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 11, we see that there's this representation from Vietnam and uh, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, you know, uh, Ukraine, from, you know, the Amazon plain, you know, the, the, from Burma, you know, the, the, the message makes it there, praise the Lord, by the lips of faithful men and women, faithful missionaries. And yet God's heart is still for more of the nations to be reached. Even in this time of judgment, an angel goes out and proclaims the everlasting gospel. It's a gospel that's it's the same gospel that was preached in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, uh, 15. To Adam and Eve and to the serpent, that the son of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Did I say that right? 
the, the son of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Okay. Uh, and so Jesus will come and he will crush the work of the enemy. That's the first gospel. It's an everlasting gospel. Genesis through Revelation. And though it was foggy and a mystery in the Old Testament, it's made clear in the New Testament. It's an everlasting gospel that this angel preaches and he preaches it globally. And he says with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who's made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Earlier in the book, we read of uh, an angel flying around heaven, crying out, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the time of God's wrath is just getting started. But here we have an angel flying around saying, basically, repent, repent, repent from your sins. There's still a chance to believe on God. Fear God. That speaks of respect God, worship God, revere God, give him glory, doxology, start singing to him, you know? Well, I would never. Well, a good way to show that you've repented of your old man is to maybe let the new man do a little, Jesus. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. He'll be like, whoa, that guy is genuine. Okay. (laughs) Maybe do it in baritone though. Not so you don't scare anybody. So repent because the hour of his judgment has come. And then this angel preaches in the same way that Paul would preach and in the same way that many missionaries begin to preach to the lost. And he begins by preaching and speaking about creation. Give glory to the God who made. Give glory to the source of it all. Give glory to the one that Romans chapter one says has given you a witness and a testimony just in creation by itself that your conscience has known that this all didn't just get here by itself. And I was listening to uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Jocko Podcast. He's a retired Navy SEAL, and he interviews veterans of foreign war, and, and he brings and draws leadership principles out of their experiences. And, and he was interviewing a man who was a special forces uh, soldier and leader in Vietnam. And this soldier's talking about how, like, everyone who got into the, this team called the SOG team Um, pretty much you knew like you weren't going to live. And I knew I wasn't going to live to be uh, 20, 21 years old. Um, I knew that I was going to die. And and after my first mission, he almost died. And there was, you know, bullets flying and explosions and the helicopter almost crashed and this, that, and the other. And, uh, and his, all of his gear would have bullet holes just flying through it. And he'd have his hair parted by bullets and all this. And he was a little short guy. And he goes, if God would have made me taller, I would have been dead. I'm so thankful that I was a short guy. But he said, he just spoke of to Jocko and I don't know if he's a believer. I know Jocko's not a believer, but they both began to say, we know there's something else out there because we have seen the unexplainable. We know that there's something. And even in, in the faithfulness of God to, to cause deliverance from the fiery furnace of affliction and battle or whatnot, it causes the hearts to begin to ponder someone's looking out for me. And, I, and, and it, it's the messenger that can come and bring clarity to who that someone is, that it's Jesus. And there's a lot to be said about that, but just to say, when we begin to point people to the source of the one who created them and has shown himself to them, 
then um, that is an effective beginning to evangelism. We're just going to look today at these next two angels before we close out the message today. Here's the second angel. Don't you like the first angel? Man, since I was in high school and I read about this first angel, I'm like, look, I don't want to be left behind and be in the tribulation period, but I want to see that, you know. Um, I want to see this angel, like, flying around heaven, preaching the gospel. Um, But I'd like to see it from a different vantage point, I suppose. In verse 8, another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city Because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We will read about Babylon later in chapters 17 and 18. Okay, Essentially, to give you a rundown, Babylon is going to be a one world government with a one world global economy. Under that one world leader of the Antichrist, everyone a part of that system will have to worship the Antichrist, will have to receive his mark on their right hand or their forehead in order to be able to buy or sell or trade or any such thing. There will be great persecution against anyone who does not <coughs> worship excuse me, the beast. And, uh, and, and so think global, okay? Think this great city. Uh, think uh, one world government economy with a leader and a one world religion uh, who is led by the false prophet. Okay, this just so you know, this is something we've been studying so far in Revelation that brings us to understanding that. I encourage you to get on our website and listen on our YouTube channel or our podcast if you're like, what is he talking about? I understand it could be quite a bit freaky deaky, but we've got Babylon here. Babylon. Some things that we glean just from this verse, and we'll learn more about her in 17 and 18. Number one, Babylon is personified as a she, okay? She will be a great city, a large city, a powerful city, a wealthy city. We see that she will fall, and it's repeated to bring the exclamation to it, is fallen, is fallen. That great one world government, Uh, economy, religious system, it will last for a moment, but then it will fall. And great will its fall be, we'll see in chapter 18. Babylon will force all the nations to be a part of her fornication. Now, we just read about the angel going around preaching to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We saw a couple weeks ago that the Antichrist will have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So you've got this battle going on for the nations uh, where Antichrist is is taking hearts, taking names, but God in his mercy is still speaking forth the truth to them, even by the lips of the angel. And Babylon, this one world government, is going to uh, make all those nations drink this experience of immorality, of sexual immorality, of idolatry, of worshiping this pagan king that we call, uh, as John calls him, the Antichrist. Um, Just very quickly, Ironside says, Babylon of old was the fountainhead of idolatry. So is the mystic Babylon today, the mother of all false religious teaching in Christianity. And the third and final angel 
Verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so this is a sobering thing to read as we hear of this third angel. The third angel coming after the first angel. The first angel who brought even a message of hope. Here's the third angel with a message of judgment. Where God is going to press the cup of his wrath to the lips of those who have refused the cup of his salvation. It brings to mind the children of Israel underneath Mount Sinai when the tablets of the commandments of the Lord were given and and they had gone and they made a golden calf and they began to worship this idol and put their trust in this false God in this image, they begin to play the harlots in, in literal and a spiritual sense. And when they were corrected for their idolatry, God ground down this golden calf and made them drink its powder. It was judgment on their sin. Here too, God says, look, I'm giving you hope and life, an opportunity to repent and to be mine, but you are willfully choosing. Anybody have a Chevy? I do. <laughs> but it's parked down the street. <clears throat> it's okay if it's you. What's the time limit on those things? Hey, Easy, do you have a baseball bat? Just... Oh, it's a Jeep? White Jeep. Anybody? Oh, all right. Woo! Oh, yep. It always is. Jeep is GM, isn't it? I mean, I was like sort of close. I mean, no, not anymore. No, used to be not even close. No. Chrysler. Yeah. Oh, I was way off. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. I mean, I could have tried to keep going with that, but... Okay. All right. So anyways, uh, moving on, we see that let's, let's point out some key words here as we're wrapping up today. We want to underline wrath of God in verse 10 or, or, or make note of it. We want to note that it's poured out full strength. Okay. Thanks so much for taking care of that. Appreciate it. Uh, we want to just make note of a torment, an indignation. Fire and brimstone. Okay, so there's this cup that will be uh, drank, drunk, drinking. I'll let you figure that one out. Okay, and it is it is an experience. Just as those that you know wanted to follow Jesus, maybe be in His right hand. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh yeah, we're totally able to do that. There's an experience of God's wrath and His indignation being poured out. It's punishment, is what it speaks of. 
And it's so severe. Verse 11 goes on to say that the smoke of this torment or torture ascends for how long? Forever. And and just in case you're wondering, and ever. Oh, it's not. No, it's not. Hey, and they have no rest day or night. And this is just where I've just been praying, Lord, I want to have that D.L. Moody heart of a a tear in my eye as I'm just considering this. This is forever. This is God's indignation and punishment towards people who have worshipped false Christs, not Jesus. And that it is something that is not for a moment, but it is forever and ever. There is a false teaching going around today, and it is the doctrine of annihilationalism. And that is that sinners in the time of God's judgment will not be punished by God's wrath, but they will just be snuffed out. They will be in a state of nirvana in a sense. They will just be annihilated and cease to exist. Partnered with that is universalism. That just whatever you believe goes and it's okay. You guys, these are demonic, devilish, false doctrines that you do not get from the Bible. If you're true to the word of God, be true to our verses today. And I speak this with as much compassion and as love as I can muster when I speak of the message of this third angel. It is a message of torture and punishment towards sinners that lasts day and night with no rest forever and ever. It is impossible to read these verses and to come up with any kind of doctrine of universalism, annihilationalism, or conditional immortality. You just don't get it from the Bible. Hell will have a constant and eternal understanding of the God that was rejected. In reading the 1700s preacher, George Whitfield, he writes, the promise of eternal happiness is so agreeable to the inclinations and wishes of mankind that all who call themselves Christians universally and willingly subscribe to the belief of it. We all love heaven, right? Everyone believes in heaven. It's awesome. It's heaven, right? But Whitfield, this effective preacher from the days of Benjamin Franklin, and he even had Benjamin's ear, said, but then there is something so shocking in the consideration of eternal torments and seemingly such an infinite disproportion between an endless duration of pain and a short life spent in pleasure that men, at least some of them, can scarcely be brought to confess this judgment as an article of their faith, that an eternity of misery awaits the wicked in a future state. Guys, I have family members and friends who have rejected Jesus. And I long for them to be born again 
and to be saved and to be in heaven forever. I, I weep at the thought of them perishing in hell and in torment for all eternity. But God's justice is a true doctrine of scripture that we have to applaud and worship him for and praise him for just as much as his doctrine of salvation. And if we would just be fair to the Bible, we will see that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. As he spoke about hell being a place of eternal fire. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Take drastic measures to get rid of sin and to cast it far from you. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. In Matthew 25, 41, it says, He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. So Jesus describes this eternal place as that of everlasting fire. Now, note the end of the verse. That place was prepared for the devil and for his angels. It was not God's intention originally for this to be a place of torment for man. In fact, to hop ahead just a little bit, he desires that none should perish and go to hell. This is in 2 Peter 3, 9. At the end of the verse, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so this place that it was prepared for the devil and for his angels, for these wicked ones, but for those that unite themselves to that wicked devil, it is a place that they will go as well. It's a place where Jude 6 says, is everlasting chains under darkness. Everlasting chains under darkness. Mark 9.43 says it's a place of unquenchable fire. If your hand causes you sin, we read it already, uh, that it's a place, a fire that will never be quenched. And it's interesting, yesterday I was cleaning our bathroom. I do that all the time. I'm just cleaning, serving my wife, you know. And I'm down on the floor, scrubbing around the toilet, making sure it's squeaky clean, you know. In case you drop some food down there, you know. <laughs> okay, anyways. And my five-year-old Titus comes in. And he's just so precious and so innocent, you know. And he just says, Dad, where's hell? You know. And, you know, it's kind of a surprising question, you know. Like, where's hell? What's hell, you know. I'm like, oh, I happen to be studying that right now. And I just began to speak to my little five-year-old about hell. And there's definite concern on his face and in his eyebrows as he hears about hell. But then there's the everlasting gospel that you introduce to that, to Titus. You're able to tell him, but you can be spared from hell. You can be freed from hell. You don't have to go to hell because of what Jesus has done. And then you introduce Jesus and all that he's done and, and what his call towards us is. It's a wonderful thing. It's just began great conversations and prayers with Titus at bedtime later on that day and begin to talk about these things with our children. 
There is the bad news, but there's also the everlasting good news to speak over the bad news. And why were these given this place of torment? It says, because they worshiped the beast and his image and they received the mark of his name. God is true to his justice. He told Adam and Eve, you eat of this fruit, this is what will happen to you. And that is what happened to them. He was true to his word about Sodom and Gomorrah and he destroyed it with fire and brimstone. He had a message of judgment to Nineveh and yet they responded to the everlasting gospel spoken by Jonah and they were freed from the judgment to come. Verse 12 says, and we'll have the worship team come on up. This is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We have the patience of the saints here. Here is patience of the saints. It's time for the saints to be reminded of the steadfast endurance they are called to. When we hear of these just difficult things in scripture to be reading of, guys, here is the time for us to be enduring and holding fast to the word of truth, to not be wavering. Here's patience of the saints. Or steadfast endurance, maybe your translation says. Duval said, perhaps the key ethical term in the book of Revelation is endurance. Those that are reading this book would be called to endure and to not bow down to these false idols. Verse 13 says, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, John, you need to write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So it's going to be a good thing to die, just as the tombstone says, R.I.P., rest in peace. It's going to be a peaceful time for you to die at this point. And the Holy Spirit speaks up and he says, yes, that they may rest from all their labors and that their works would follow them. As we close out this morning, and you can set your Bible aside. Mm-hmm.